Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Five words is never enough. Enough red, enough blue, purple. I got five on it. <laughs> one, two. Check one, two. Few people have had their work permeate pop culture as intensely as today's guest, Tommy Kale. He's the Tony Award-winning director of the genre-defying theatrical mega-sensation known as Hamilton. It's hard to overstate the brilliance and popularity of Hamilton, two things that don't always go together, by the way. But what's less discussed is the interdependence of Hamilton and internet culture. On the one hand, the internet audience had a front-row seat to Hamilton before it was even a production, thanks to early rendition of the opening number at the White House, which went viral online. There were also early demos of songs on Twitter and a virtual chorus of fans whose reactions in its early years helped the creators shape the show. On the other hand, the internet itself is being transformed by Hamilton's success, and we talk about that. How tickets are sold differently today because of Hamilton and what it means, and from the creator's perspective, what it's like to have millions of young people singing, sharing, and commenting on the music of Hamilton on the internet every day. It's hard to imagine how the phenomena of Hamilton exists without the internet, but in equal measure, what parts of the internet would have been these past few years without Hamilton? Here's my conversation with Hamilton director, Tommy Kale. So Hamilton kind of got its start on the internet, and by that I mean that it's one of the first plays, or I guess you're going to call it a play, it's one of the first productions, first musicals, really first Broadway things, where the very, very beginning of it was actually captured, or some part of it was captured on the internet. There was a performance at the White House in 2009. I think it was probably before it was even considered, you guys even were thinking it was going to be a Broadway production, or maybe you were? Uh, at that point, it was an album that Lynn had in his head, but really was just one song that he wrote. So this was super primordial in that way. Yeah, it was way before there was any concept of there even being a show. And the White House, it was a great performance. People can watch it now on on the White House, on Obama's White House YouTube channel, I think. White House put it up, and it went, you know, kind of viral, I would say. Like, it wasn't necessarily... It was viral-ish. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily, like, what Hamilton is today. Um, but people started talking about it. Yes. What was that like? Were you involved with the project at that point? Well, I was involved in that Lynn and I have been friends for... Uh, you know, 15 years now. So I met Lynn in 2002 and we started working on In the Heights, which was our first show together that year. So when Lynn made that song, he was about a year into the Broadway run of In the Heights. So he was actually looking for the next thing, doing the show, doing Heights in New York at night, and then just percolating. And he had gone on a vacation and grabbed this book by Ron Chernow and then decided that he wanted to follow this impulse he had, that maybe there was something there. So he wrote this song really in a vacuum, not bringing it to me and saying, hey, here's a show, but he shared it in the way that we share things. And then it's it's sort of like a, a strange sentence, but then the White House called and asked him to come perform, which is not something that generally happened with us. Um, and they asked him to do something uh, that represented the power of the word, the spoken word, the written word. 
and probably thought that he was going to do something from Heights. And he said, I actually have this, this new thing. It's a new song, and it's about the Treasury Secretary. It feels like that might be a good uh, So it wasn't as if they had heard about the actual song No, before. no, there was th- no one had ever heard about the song. I mean, Not it maybe it. been played for like six people, me being one of them, and then five other people who I can't remember right now. Right, <laughs> so right. Um, no, he just played it for his friends. Um, and then it was, you know, it's really a reminder of the randomness of all of this because Lynn went and did this event. He closed out the evening, but that was it. There was no discussion of it being broadcast. There was no... HBO special, there was nothing. It was this thing that he did and then it was gone, except that it actually was filmed for a television project that ended up not happening. And they gave the footage, as I understand it, to the White House and the White House put all of these performances, all the people that performed that night online. And then all of a sudden this, you know, uh, event six months prior for 300 people became available to the world because they actually, they put it up on their you know, you know, whitehouse.gov, but then it just got put onto YouTube. And then right. all of a sudden it could just be sort of available and, and was able to bounce around. And a lot of history teachers found it and their students found it. And that's really when it started, you know, sort of circulating a little bit in 2009. And so what, how much of the, of the reaction that you got, like how much of that reaction changed the course of what it became? Did it, was it, was it the well, reaction it proved to, to me that? that Lynn wasn't lying because, you know, he said it went well and I was like, prove it. Um, no, but, uh, I mean, it, it just, it, because I wasn't in the room for it, it gave me an indication that there was an audience that was larger than just that room at the White House, but not in a way that got my brain spinning thinking, I know it's going to be a show. Right, right. It was more, I just wanted to encourage my friend who uh, had this inspiration and my job, whether we're working on something or not, is to try to encourage that inspiration. So I think it did give Lynn some confidence that there was something there. And then he started working on a song that became My Shot, which is the third song in the show. But he wrote that, it probably took him, you know, between 12 months and 14, 15 months just to write that next song. And then we did a little presentation of that at this one night benefit in June of 2011. And that was the first time I was ever in the room with the material. And that's, you know, that's when I kind of was able to feel the the spark, not just through a computer screen, but actually being there. Right. And a couple, I think not too much later, he performed a bunch of the songs at the opening of the American Songbook series at Lincoln Center. And that was, there was some film of that also that... That also could exist. That's right. So the thing we did was at this little theater called Ars Nova. This was in June of 2011. And I said to Lynn that night, why don't we work on two songs a month and see if we can come up with 10 or 12 songs and just pick a date six months from now and do something. And the American Songbook opportunity came up. Um, They offered him a slot. We decided that was a great thing to work towards. And then they filmed it. And there is footage of that that went out. It didn't go crazy around the world. But that was the first time we did 10 songs from the show, that's when we thought maybe there was a, a live theatrical uh, version of this that's not just an album, because again, at that point, it was called the Hamilton Mixtape, and right. he was really just thinking about it in that way. And obviously, mixtapes, which which when I grew up were a very different thing, because of the internet, can get passed around in such a different way. And so now we're talking about 2011, 2012, where the sharing of music became so easy, You know, even from five, six years prior to that. So we did this presentation, performance, one night only thing in January of 2012. And that's when I saw 400 people in the room with me react. And I think gave us another boost to, to continue to move it forward um, and, and entertain it as a live show. You've directed a bunch of other productions. Um, 
and you have your own gut and taste about what you think is good and what you think is going to work, how important is seeing the audience's reaction to it? It's pretty important, you know, for you. It's important. I, I tend to try to make shows that I would want to see, and that's really what guides me, you know. And as an audience member, you, you know, my, my experience as an audience member and my, my job as a director are very connected. My job is to be the audience until there is one and to respond and react in kind um, to whatever is being brought to me, especially if I'm working on new stuff. So there's also something about putting it in front of a group of strangers that just teaches you about the show, that teaches you about where you are. I, I kind of liken it to inviting someone over to your house, and you think the house is clean, and then as soon as you invite someone over, you realize that that window's broken, I never noticed that that door doesn't work, and I hope they don't go in that room. And then they come in, and you realize they don't care about the window, they didn't even look at that wall that wasn't painted, but boy, you gotta fix the kitchen. Right, so it, right. it also just, it just uh, it, uh, raises your sensory alert to a very high level, and you start to watch it differently. Right. Uh, just to go back to after the performance, American Songbook. And so, God, I was then so it's, young then. So, so many years so ago. So hard to cast my memory back. A short five years ago. Oh, God. Uh, so then you end up workshopping it right around that point where you start, you you and Lynn, and you all start seeing this as a Broadway production and not just a mixtape anymore. I never is thought that, of it as a Broadway production. Okay. I just thought of it as a theatrical Sorry, production. Sure. Yeah. And, and my job is to try to find a form that inspires the the writer. And after that, there was a lot of there was a lot of available data for us that some of these things were really landing, and so we wanted to continue to build. But again, still calling it the Hamilton mixtape, still not being beholden to narrative in a way that sometimes if you think about a show, you're like, okay, well, how does Act 1 begin? How does Act 1 end? What's the moment that we need where we're going to bring everybody in and it's going to be intimate? And and then how do you crescendo and then come back down? So you're kind of sequencing a mixtape, and that's a lot of how Lynn talks about and thinks about making a, a musical. And so that gave us a lot of information, but the show ultimately had 46 songs in it, and at that point we had 10 or 11. So we were still a quarter of the way. We didn't know how many ultimately there would be. At a moment, there were 50 when we were off-Broadway, and that sort of shrank to 46. So it just gave us the encouragement we needed to keep going, and then to start to think about how best to next develop the show. And we did it in a relatively traditional way. We would get a group of actors together every three or four months. We'd been working during those interim periods, and then we would sit around and read stuff, and we would try it uh, with... um, two people doing something that they'd never done, and then we'd give the information to someone else and see how that felt. So just kind of like trying it on different talented people and building towards a a first act. And then ultimately we went away to the New York Stage and Film, which is in Poughkeepsie, up at Vassar. And that's where we really worked on the first act. That was the summer of 2013. I'm going to get to in a second. I I do want to talk a bit about just the interconnectedness of you and your production and the production with the internet. I mean, there's so many examples later on the publishing of the mixtape and early releases of things on Twitter and so forth. Before Mm -hmm. we get there, uh, one thing I want to ask you about was just sort of more in this realm of creativity and production. You know, when I first saw Hamilton, among many, many, many things that blew my mind... You you saw it down at the public? I saw it down at the public, yeah. Was It was so different than any other musical or production I had ever seen. It was, and that's not as if I had seen hundreds of musicals and have all this knowledge to, but it just struck me as so incredibly different. Um, and of course the writing's great and the music is great and the acting is great. Um, but just getting, how do you, how did you get all of those people to understand and sort of buy into the direction you're going in when it, 
maybe maybe to you the direction doesn't seem that new. To somebody in the audience, I think it seems like very, very different and very, very new. And that was something that was so refreshing and wonderful about it. It was just, it was just so surprising and awesome. But I would imagine it's just like hard to, you know, it's hard enough to get people to do something all together when everybody knows where they're going. Well, I, you know, it's funny. Or how do you think about that? Well, I, I think about it a lot. I'm, I'm fascinated by leadership and I read a lot and study other people in leadership positions and try to learn from stuff they do or, or how they make things. Um, but then ultimately, like everything else, you get all the information, then you just have your own way of doing it that in, in, you know, incorporates some things. And, you know, um, and my feeling is my job is a lot like being an entrepreneur and that if I do my job well, I go into a place where a bunch of people have never met or have worked together or haven't worked together. And my job is to unify them and let them understand where we're trying to go and how we're trying to get there. And that's really as simple as my job is. And then once the show opens, then I need to be able to go away so, so that I'm building a show in that process that can exist without me. Because if I need to be there after the show opens every day, then I failed. So I'm trying to start something and give it infrastructure so that when I step away from it, it can function fully without me there. And with something like this, which is in some way different from other things, but other ways quite similar, the material was so strong and people's visceral reaction to what Lynn was writing was so powerful that there's not a lot of convincing once somebody got in the room. The elevator pitch of it is kind of strange, okay. but you're also bringing in people that you've worked with before where you already built that faith and that confidence. So Chris Jackson, who ended up playing George Washington, the original company, I'd known since 2002 when we were early days of In the Heights and then Freestyle Love Supreme, which is another show that I did with him. David Diggs, who ended up playing uh, Lafayette and Jefferson, was also in Freestyle Love Supreme and I'd known for three or four years. And he thought we were a little bit crazy when we first told him about it, but he, he jumped in because he was like, oh, well, these are, like, these are people that I've been with before. I'll be treated well and the material will be compelling and let's see what happens. So it's definitely an act of faith, but I do think that without what Lynn was, uh, you know, that doesn't happen unless Lynn is making something that feels like it has a lot of electricity and juice in it that, that talented people feel like they can contribute to or that they can plug into. So the, the cast reaction is essentially the same as the audience's reaction in that way. It's they, they see it, they love it and they're, they're, they're running with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're a if you're a performer and someone you're you know a performer is is often asked to take material that is subpar and make it passable and then every now and then you get text and material or a song that is at the same level of of your talent or maybe even a little bit above as as this one might have been a little bit above where I was and so you have to reach and so I think people that are not afraid to reach and want to extend themselves and try to grasp something that is maybe beyond their grasp unless they really elevate, run towards this kind of thing. And so I'm always looking for people that are running into these kinds of situations, not running from them. And we found many, many people in that original company who didn't know us and felt that way and joined us and some other people we did know. And now that we're, you know, I just finished casting our fourth production and our fifth production is, is um, in the process of being cast. Now that the show has been out in the world, you're getting you're getting to audition people that have lived with it for two years. And so it's been in their bones. And so that's one way that it's really changed from those early days is the proliferation, not just of the idea of what the show is, but just the access to the show and the music is now so 
um, complete and available, that that makes finding people just a different kind of challenge, but but still this, the same sort of process of discovery. And the amount of connectedness that people in the world can have to this show is so much, I think, so much different than ever in the past. I'm sure there's some shows out there that had some degree yeah, of, of course, pop culture, but you know, um, Lynn used Twitter to release demos of it. He annotated the Hamilton lyrics on Genius. I talked about that. Uh, there was all these ham for ham sidewalk performances uh, as part of ticket lotteries. Well, the, you know, I, I can't overstate Lynn's transparency and his and his availability on Twitter as a way for people to stay connected to the show. You know, Lynn is singular in many ways, um, and he's someone who really understands the power of the internet to connect people that are feeling alone. And so a writer at, you know, at midnight when no one else is up is feeling alone trying to struggle through this thing and using Twitter to say, hey, here's where I am, I'm struggling, or this is difficult, or this is a challenge. All of a sudden by broadcasting those things, you're finding community. And so Lynn has been very connected to that community and has, has loved being a part of that community. And I think the community has appreciated watching this thing unfold and knowing that it didn't happen in 10 minutes. Right. It was years and years and years of him working. And Lynn's also not afraid to share the unpolished parts of himself, the unvarnished parts of himself, the early demos of him singing at four in the morning um, when his voice was hoarse. And so I think that also just makes us uh, relate to something that doesn't then feel like it's this monolith that's been delivered you know, from on high. It's like, no, he's a guy that struggles and uh, and doesn't always have the answer and stays up late and procrastinates and then comes up with, the, you know, a good idea and then shares it with his collaborators, just like, you know, I think we all hope to be. And, and I think that that's been a really essential part of people's connectivity to the show, especially when no matter how easy it is or hard to see any piece of theater, there's, there was one place to see it in the world, and that was at the Public Theater in New York for 290 people a night. And then there was one place to see it in the world after the show transferred to the Richard Rodgers on Broadway, and there were 1,340 people, and that was it. And then all of a sudden you open in Chicago and you're running simultaneously. And now there are 1,900 people in Chicago that can see it. So now your New York audience went from 100% to 40% of your audience. And then the show opens in San Francisco and we open that company and all of a sudden another 2,000 people are seeing it. And now five out of every six people that are seeing it are seeing it outside of New York. So the access is growing, but that's still a very limited amount of people that can see something. But that album, when it came out in September of 2015, if you had $19.99, you could have the album. Right. And everybody has 20 bucks because everyone goes to see Guardians of the Galaxy or everyone goes sure. to see Wonder Woman. So you can make a decision to have access to it in that way. And I think that the album is also how the show spread in such a deep way. Yeah. I mean, do you think we're going to start seeing other productions following that? Are we starting to see other productions? Because overall in the world of like show business, right, this concept of a big reveal is like a very – old school, tried and true way of, of sort of making drama, right? And you have even like Hollywood theater movie pictures that they never want any of the film cl- footage to get out. You know, the, the storyline of Game of Thrones is held under wraps. Um, but as you're saying, you guys really revealed a lot more throughout the process. Well, we revealed that- but, but what we didn't do was reveal the show. Right. So what we revealed was the process of making it in a certain way. But we did a, a workshop in... May of 2014, about six months before we started rehearsal for the public theater later that year. And we staged the whole first act. And that was the first time Andy Blankenbuehler, our choreographer, really was able to do his work. And we orchestrated it for six or seven pieces. So the orchestration was growing. We tried costumes out. So we were doing some, uh, basically some, some research 
in front of people. And after that, people's reaction was very positive. But I also felt like we needed to go and just make the show and stop talking about it and stop um, just putting it out there unfinished. Mm. It felt like that was an opportunity for us to just really um, focus on the work because we had one chance to go into rehearsal and then put it out in the world. Because once you let that genie out of the bottle, like there is no going back to it. So from May of 2014 until the show had its first performance on January 20th of 2015, there were no articles written about the show unless it was people writing about it. We didn't give any interviews. We actually showed very little of the show. Interesting. And you know, the, if you look online right now, there's very little of the show that we've ever put out there. We've, we've really focused on making the experience in the theater the way to absorb the show. And the album, the incredible album made by Alex Lacamoire and, and, and Lynn and Bill Sherman and The Roots is a document of the music of the show, but it's a companion to the show. So it's also not trying to be the show. It's in its own lane. Right. Just like the, the book, uh, the Hamilton book is in its own lane. And I think we tried to be really conscious of that, but there's nowhere to see Helpless and Satisfied. There's nowhere to see nonstop. There's nowhere to see a lot of these numbers. And we were very careful to try to keep the show in the envelope that it was supposed to be seen in, which is why we did the Grammy performance with, with their partnership and support from our stage live. Right. We didn't go to L.A. to do that and take the show out of the Richard Rogers Theater. We thought that it would be best served for all parties to be in the world that had been created to support the show. So we were very careful, and our producer Jeffrey Seller and I, have lots of conversations with Lynn about these things, as, as we did when Oscar Eustace was, um, uh, you know, at the public and, and was was a sort of lead producer at that point, um, and then obviously as a partner as we move through. So we have lots of these conversations and think very deeply about where the show and how the show can be represented outside of the, the theaters where they exist. You know, there's there's like, I think, like Broadway HD, and there's starting to be these services where it's like the concept is like, let can you let people watch... Uh, a theater show, a musical, a play from, you know, the HD, HD experience in their living room. How do you think about that? I, I think it's fantastic, and I think it's really right for many shows. So I'm in full support of it. I was just up at Lincoln Center earlier today, and all the chairs are set up, you know, right in front of, you know, the fountain for people to watch live opera. And I think that's fantastic that, that you can watch something that's in London, broadcast there, all around the world simultaneously. So... They did this with a show called She Loves Me last year, which is a right. revival, which had a limited run. And I think for shows that have limited runs in particular, it's wonderful to be able to share them in that way. And if you can find another, and I don't know what the, what the actual um, you know, metrics are in it, but if another 50,000 or 100,000 or 250,000 people watch a show, you have to remember that when you go to see a Broadway show, there's only 1,300 people there, 1,000 people there, 1,500 people there. So over the course of one year in New York City, even if we sold every seat at the Richard Rogers, that's about 550,000 people. That's not a very highly rated television show. <laughs> right, right. And so if a quarter of a million people can watch it outside of that, that's the equivalent of six months of an audience getting a chance to participate. And so I'm all in favor of it. And I think it's terrific that people are both finding it to distribute their shows and to get these limited runs out to, to audiences. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But you guys didn't decide to do that, right? You definitely could have. There's no doubt that, and I would guess if probably somebody called, you could have done like a... Hamilton on demand, Fourth of July, you know, seventy nine ninety five on FiOS or something, right? But you guys decided not to do that on some level. Yeah, um, I mean, it it never even occurred to us um, in in a way that you know that would get in 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 any sort of competition with what we really believe the show um, should be should be doing, which is reaching people in a theater. The, you know, the authorial intent, Lynn wrote the show to be consumed in that way. Right. And maybe there will be a point, I, I don't know, at some point down the line, I, I can't speculate about that, but I do know that right now we feel like we're trying to put these other companies out as quickly as we can so that people can have access to it in, in many different places. How do you think that the, if just imagine a world where like there was no internet, how do you think that would have affected Hamilton? I mean, I don't, it's, it's impossible to extricate it from, from the internet. You know, Mike Carnes, who runs our social for the Hamilton uh, handle and our Insta account and Snap and all that stuff, is really smart about what he shares and how he shares. And now that there are so many different people who participate in the show, because there are 30 people in the cast, 20 on stage, in all these different cities, you know, these takeovers, like when these two people from San Francisco do a takeover, that brings their fans into the Hamilton stream and the Hamilton stream into their fans. So like, you know, we're still finding new people. And, and the fact that, that that's a way to talk about the show and have conversations about the show is so linked to how I think about the show. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know what would happen if it had, you know, dawned in a pre-internet age, but I do know that, um, that the, the support of the internet community has certainly helped the show thrive and, and find uh, people that don't always go see theater singing the songs or reading about it or learning about it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably, I mean, that's certainly one of the, the you know, from like a far away, as a, some people who maybe don't go to the theater that often or don't live in New York, I, the, probably one of the biggest noticeable things is that this is, this is something that's entirely broken through and completely broken out of just like Broadway. And, and there's people all over the world who like never even thought about going to the theater who were like listening to the album and hoping to see it one well, day. Well, that's you know that's a that's something I hope is true because we're part of a, a generation of musical theater and gen- musical theater makers who were raised on the classic musical theater that we all know and love. And if this is now bringing more people into the fold and saying, "Hey, this is for you also," then I think we're you know we're just one dot on a line. But I think that we're then doing work that will hopefully encourage a new generation of theater goers. Um, you know, the fact that young people under the age of 10 know lots of songs from our show or from Dear Evan Hansen, you know, or, or Natasha Pierre is thrilling to me because those are the people hopefully in 10 years will be making theater or saying, I want to go see theater or, you know, 20 years from now and their family. So it, it, it's, it's this cycle that theater's in, which is this kind of fabulous invalid. So theater's been dying for 
you know, 63,000 years and then somehow it always regenerates because I think that people do want to go sit in the dark around the campfire together right. no matter what's going on in the world. So I think that that, that can coexist with a, an internet age. Tell me what it's like opening up, opening up new companies and new cities as a director. What's that like? Or tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I, I love doing it. It's very much like scaling a business, you know, and my, my thought to ensure that the quality of the audience's experience is at a very high level because the expectation is high. We're not, you know, we're not sneaking under the radar when we open somewhere. It's a lot of people that have thought deeply or have worked hard to get there. And so we take real care in making these shows at a, you know, an absolutely high level where it's commensurate with their expectation. And so I love finding new people to go out and kind of spread the show. Um, it, it's, it's an opportunity for people that have been in the show in one capacity to then evolve into another role. So I, I love seeing that happen on a personal level. Um, so people change role. You've had people in. in oh, yeah. Or people yeah. that have started as understudies or covers right. now are playing the role um, for 2,400 people a night. And so, you know, there are, again, five out of every six people that sees the show sees it outside of New York. So there, Angelica and Eliza and Peggy are the people that they see on stage at the Pantages in Los Angeles or when they come to Atlanta or they come to D.C. That's their, that's their uh, representation of the show. And I think that that works in concert with the album because that original company was marvelous. And our job was to try to create something that isn't, isn't trying to replicate what that company did because I think that that does a disservice to their work and it also is a handcuff for anybody who's coming in to interpret the role. So the show itself, it's all the same words, it's all the same staging, it's the same stage picture. Everywhere we do the show, we're delivering the exact same material, but the interpretation is different. And that's the beauty of theater, is that it's an interpretive art. And so the way that someone plays the role, you know, a year from now is gonna be revelatory for me, even though I might know all of the things that I know, and then I see someone do something or hear someone say a line or, find a moment and that's discovery for them and it's discovery for me. So it's, it's really thrilling. And along with, you know, the rest of the creative team, Alex Lackamore, music director, supervisor, and, and Andy Blankenbuehler and Lynn, um, and they're incredible designers. Um, you know, our job is to try to go and find the right people to be on stage, to honor the show and to also honor the, the effort of the audience that's made their way to the show. And there's going to be, I mean, I would, if not already, there's going to be like young people in high schools, hopefully having their own editions of Hamilton one day. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, the, and there the, might be some of the most talented singers sure. out there at those places. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm already meeting people that come in and audition for the show now who first heard the show their junior year of college. And so those, those people will just be getting the show younger, right? It won't be that long where five years from now they'll say, I first heard this in 10th grade and here I am. And so they'll have lived with it for five or six years and it just becomes part of their canon, you know, becomes yeah. part of their rotation. Getting very old, Tommy. Um, maybe you are, <laughs> but for some for some reason, I'm uh, I'm stuck at a uh, at seventeen. <laughs> One of the other things that happened, sort of big con controversy, I guess you could say, um, around Hamilton was the tickets and the ticket bots, and that was this general thing that happened, which is it was so popular. And this has happened. I think it's particularly interesting to talk to you about it because I know you're also have a deep love of sports, um, and this is something that happens in sports too, which is that these tickets come out and people who run sporting teams and are doing directing musicals, I think probably hope that the people who want to come and sit in the theater are the ones who buy the tickets. But what actually happens is that these brokers, ticket scalpers, call them what you will, 
Um, they buy the tickets, but they buy them sufficiently because they basically use computer bots to buy them, right? And Correct. they buy them in like seconds. And then yeah. the ticket that got sold for $125 is now $500 and the people who make all the money are these ticket scalpers. Um, and Lynn wrote a, a big op-ed about this and eventually like state law got changed, uh, essentially preventing this from happening. Yeah, I mean, in trying to find ways to penalize that was not just the cost of doing business. You know, because if you're, if you're able to, and these aren't, I'm, you know, I'm obviously not a, a tech guy, but if you can create a bot and buy a thousand tickets in five seconds, the amount of money you'll make off that, if if the fine is not at a high level, then it just feels like the cost right. of doing business. Yeah. And so it is our desire to try to get the the tickets to the people that are really desiring to see the show and not just trying to profit off of um, the opportunity to, to make money. And there's always going to be scalpers. Yeah. That's never going to stop. And I remember I was reading the autobiography of this director named Josh Logan, who directed South Pacific, and he talked about opening night in 1949 and seeing the scalpers. So like, you know, and I'm sure when there was fire and there was right. a, there was someone who's like, hey, I can sell you a ticket to the fire, you know, like I think there will always be thus, right? right. Like that I, I, I don't fight, and nor do any of us. But when you can create an algorithm that can snap up tens of thousands of tickets in, in, a, in a fashion that prevents people who are there clicking refresh or trying to log on or trying to call in, then, you know, then there's a barrier built and we're trying to, yeah. you know, in any way we can kind of nudge this because concerts deal with this a lot. It's a lot of limited engagements, right? Like a sporting event, there's only one playoff game right. and then that team is gone. Or there's only eight football games for a home team, you know, um, there's not a lot. So the, you know, it's all about the supply and the demand for these things, but Right, you for, can't you can't you can't change that. There's still a limited the, amount of seats. There's more people want to see right. it, but you can make it somehow more fair, and it, you can also make the money hopefully that gets charged go directly to the people who made it, as opposed yeah, to yeah, and keep people's ticket prices down. A lot of times, I'll hear people say the tickets cost X amount of money, and that's not an amount of money that we are setting the ticket price at. Right, that's an amount of money that the secondary market is. And so, how have your efforts gone at combine? How do you how do you think the efforts have gone? I think getting better the, all the yeah. time. You know, I mean, there's smart people working on both sides of this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we we did something in London um, for the show when the tickets went on sale, which is it's a paperless ticketing system, which has also become very common now with sporting events and concerts, but uh, is possible over there in a way that means you have to have the credit card to pick up the ticket physically. So that that's a way to get the ticket more directly to people that are right. actually, you know, trying to buy it with their credit card. Um, and then Ticketmaster... We just went on sale with another block about a week ago. We're, we're right before Labor Day right now, so just a week ago um, in New York and then in Chicago, which is Ticketmaster Verified, where you have to give more information. So it's automatically weeding out certain people that have 73 credit cards, you know, and are kind of, or are not people and, you know, and are these programs. So this is all in the last year these things have happened. So we're moving as, as quickly as we can, and we're trying to take advantage of the fact that there's some amplification around our voice and that we can speak for... Uh, for uh, for a group of people um, in this particular show that actually are representative of a larger challenge for sporting events and concerts and artists and trying to get the you know the the tickets to the people that really want to see the show and, and not just from profiteers. Have you? I mean, it's has it been hard? I I think one of the normal courses of action that whether you're selling football tickets or musical tickets that people take in this case is they if they see the tickets being sold on the market, ninety percent of them at seven times the price they're selling them for, they raise prices. Sort of makes sense. Um, have you, has it been difficult? You've sort of touched on that people have said to you that I paid this much for the tickets. Has it been difficult to, you know, have you gotten complaints from friends and so forth? They're not even friends, but just hearing criticism around how much the tickets cost, even though you're not necessarily the ones charging for the tickets. Um, 
I mean, it doesn't generally get to me. If, if someone didn't know I had an affiliation with the show and it comes up, you know, I don't wear like a lot of like Hamilton t-shirts around, so I'm sure there's <laughs> most people that don't know who they're talking to if they're talking about it, um, or they think I'm the music director um, who looks like me, or I look like him. Um, but, you know, when someone says that a ticket costs a number that I know we don't charge, and they're talking about that being like a rear mezzanine seat, um, I just try one at a time to say, this is actually what's happening, right. but I'm also not like, outside the theater screaming about right, it because, right, right, right. you know, what you can do is you realize that if the mar the market can uh, support a certain price for a certain period of time and then, you know, right. that will it's eventually wane. Right, yeah, it's like theory. this is where that moment is, right? Although you seem to be potentially well, one day combating that idea. So like, um, you know, and so the idea is if someone would pay X to a broker, they would maybe pay X minus a little bit to get it in a fully verified way. Because the other thing that started happening is that people would get fake tickets. Right. And uh, there right. was a lot of counterfeiting happening right. or like Craigslist. And there's just, again, people taking advantage of the demand for the show. So it, that stuff doesn't generally trickle you know, to yeah. me or hit me directly. But I'm consciously thinking of it, as is our producer, Jeffrey Seller, of how to, uh, to navigate this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by this, I mean like these algorithms and like the people that are thinking about this very actively how to make money off of the off of the show, or again, a sporting event, or you know, sort yeah. of, you know, we're, we're sort of thinking about it in a, in a larger sense as well. Your uh, partner Lynn, I've talked about. He's you talked about very prolific online, very open online. You, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> very I very little this, footprint, very little footprint. I, and I know this firsthand from watching you win a Tony Award and wanting to congratulate you with all the people that we know who know you on Twitter and. No, you know, it was sort of like there was no way of like retweeting Tommy. So people just basically created the hashtag Tommy Kale to be like, go oh. Tommy. Um, that was nice of people. <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, but, you know, but uh, point being though, um, you know, you're not, you're not personally super prolific online. Is there? I think I'm the opposite the, of super prolific. <laughs> I have no Twitter <laughs> handle, no Insta. I've never had Facebook. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much the opposite of super prolific. So this is not like a, why aren't you? But it's not a controversial question. I just, but I'm curious. It's, it's definitely a decision you've made, right? There's a lot of people who are like, aren't prolific, but have accounts. You clearly made a decision not to be in those places. Yes. Talk about that a bit. You know, Lynn needs attention and I don't want to take attention from him. Um, is it like a I, distraction? I just, you don't want to, you know. I think it's a little yeah. bit like I know my personality uh -huh. and I know that it's something that I would probably think about more than I would want to. Yeah. Um, is it, is I it, also like, I, I was okay with there being a little bit of a barrier. Um, and I don't want to, uh, to, I don't know, like I, I didn't always feel like I had something to say and there's something about like having that that feels like every time something happens in the world, whatever, that you have to like weigh in on it. And right. it's like, I don't think people really care what I have to right. say about that. Right. Um, and if I have something very funny to say, I'll just like tell Lynn, I'll say, uh, tweet this or put it in quotes and say I did it. Right. Um, do you feel like you're ever like missing out? No, interesting. It's pretty easy to be on Twitter and read stuff. Uh, you know? So, okay. so I definitely so there's like a fake account out there. It's like KLT or something. <laughs> People always say that there's no fake account. You just go to Twitter and you like type in what you want to read about. It's not that hard to do. It's, everyone's like it's a secret club. It's like it's not that secret, not that exclusive. Everybody can do it. I do not have a fake handle. There's no like egg with like two followers. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do use Twitter as a way to see what's going on in the world. Right. But I've also found myself. Um, you know, doing it when I, I find it necessary as opposed to it buzzing in my phone. And yeah. I, like I like that I can go to it and it doesn't come to me. Yeah. I, think. I wanted to ask you about it because I think that there's probably, especially listening to this podcast, I think there's a, probably a lot of people out there who 
really enjoy. Just tweet it, uh, DMD, no, if you no, get a chance. They really enjoy their time on Twitter and the interactions or on Instagram or whatever it is. For but sure. I think are also, you know, myself included, like kind of jealous sometimes of people, like if, if you just don't have an account. Like that sounds actually very liberating too, which is why I want to ask you about it. You also can try it. <laughs> And I, you know, I will say this, most of my friends, most of my friends are very active on, uh, yeah. you know, on Twitter and social media. Whenever they say, I'm not going to do it for this amount of time, no one ever comes back and they're like, oh my God, my life was so much worse. They're like, hey, I just wrote a poem. They're like, I just, I just designed this amazing car. And I was like, right, well, cause look, look what happened. Your brain was there. Cause I also, you know, I'm on my phone a lot. And so you know, I'm very conscious of like the soft landing at night and trying to put my phone away and not having to wake up. You know, part of the thing that I find is a challenge is because your phone is now your clock, for yeah. me it is, right? I yeah. never really wore a watch, but your phone is your clock. So the fact that it's in your bedroom, and so that means if you turn off your alarm, there's also who who got in touch with me. It's like, what am I, who cares? It's 7.30 in the morning yeah. who sent me a, a text or an email. And so I'm trying to be better about like just keeping that out because I think already um, waking up to that energy and not just like giving your, your brain a little bit of time to wake up. I, I, I don't think that it's, it's the best thing for me. And this yeah. is all very subjective. And so I try yeah, to be conscious of that. Yeah. Tell me what you're doing now. Um, talking to you. And? Feeling pretty good about it. Good. Um, should be. I just joined Twitter. <laughs> uh, I am getting ready to uh, start rehearsal for a play that I'm doing at the public theater called Tiny Beautiful Things, which is actually kind of interesting in the, uh, in the internet conversation. It's a play that uh, was was based on a book called Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl's very active online. She wrote the book Wild. And while she was in the sort of back and forth with the editor for Wild, she took on this online advice column for rumpus.net, which was called Dear Sugar. This guy named Steve Almond offered it to her. And at the time, there were very few people reading it. It was not paying. She had two kids. It was like the last thing she should do. And she said, but I want to do it. And so she started this advice column, and she did it anonymously. And it started to build up a pretty big following and again, anonymously. So there's this interest, right? Like right now, like everything is about who's known and what's not known. And so this was, you know, maybe five years ago, four or five years ago. And the column over the course of a couple years became in this sort of small circle of the literary world, the, the thing that everybody read on Thursdays. What kind of advice was she giving? It, it could be anything. It could okay. be, you'd be saying, um, I'm nervous about my first day of school. It could be, uh, should I invite my father to my wedding? It could be, I'm trying to... Um, start a new life and move away. How do I do that? I, I cannot recommend this book, uh, you know, highly enough. I've given it to 17 people and I'm 17 for 17 with them calling me crying at some point. It's incredibly this profound. Tiny, it's just tiny, beautiful thing. So I read it four years ago and I got really interested in the idea of, could you make a, a public experience out of the private experience you have of writing? So um, in the private experience you have of reading. So when I'm reading a book, I don't usually read it straight through. I'll read it and put it down and pick it back up and you go live your life and then you pick it back up and revisit it. But in theater, it's a continuous event. So could you have a group of people that are used to reading something that has a fair amount of emotional impact sitting in the dark next to them? Could you make it communal? Could you make it cathartic and sit in a room with 200 people you've never met that you'll probably never see again, have the lights go out and then feel something? So Nia Vardalis is a friend of mine and so I gave the book to Nia and I said, I really want to make a play out of this. And so she responded very um, powerfully to Cheryl's words. And we started working on this and we got in touch with Cheryl. She got in touch with her by writing on her Facebook wall. Um, and Cheryl wrote back immediately after four months of me completely not <laughs> being able to reach Cheryl. So again, like the power of the internet. Um, and we did this play at the public uh, nine months ago and we're bringing it back. But it's something that started as an online advice column mm -hmm. and now exists as a piece of theater. 
you know, in a, yeah. you know, in a, in a space on Lafayette street in New York city. So right. I'm really excited to put the show out into the world again. And the genesis of it was, and it was know, a super show. short run to be, yeah, we, time, we right? did on like purpose. Right? Yeah, yeah. We just wanted to kind of try it out and see right. what we had. We did like six or seven weeks, right. um, last November and then it ended like January 1st. And now we're doing an extended run at the Newman theater, which is, you know, a slightly bigger space down uh-huh. at the public. But right. again, started, you know, with, with someone writing and posting online right. all these years ago. And it sort of found its way to this much more sort of pre-technological form in the theater, but yet they can coexist. The book is always out there. The online column doesn't exist, but those columns do. But yeah. we're now sort of collecting the community that that she that she created online. You think we're going to start seeing a, a more more uh, theatrical productions that are coming from other media? Yes. Yeah, I think there's now a dialogue with all of these um, different forms of media. You know, I'm 40 years old, so I graduated from college in 99. So remember when the world was going to end in 2000 when it was Y2K? (laughs) So, like, I remember that. And you and I are immigrants to technology, right? There's now, like, kids are native. There was no time when they didn't exist. They all know how to swipe and all of those things that we had to learn. Like, I remember when you know, the computer screen was black and it was green and it was pine and we were sending our first emails. So we've sort of learned along the way. And when I got to New York in 99, 2000, there was no ability to make videos easily. So there was nowhere to post them. You couldn't shoot stuff, you know, you know, digital video was, was around, but was still kind of expensive. So it was less expensive for us to make a small piece of theater than it was for us to try to film something and edit it. Yeah. Whereas obviously that has completely shifted over the last, you know, I don't know, decade really. But a lot of the people like me, that are still old enough to remember when there wasn't, but are participating when it was, are now sort of, you know, the me- like we're the middle generation. There's this whole group of people in their 20s that came up knowing how to make stuff because they grew up in, you know, the mid-2000s where you could record so easily and you could share so easily. So I think that that, sh- that ability to um, interpolate that kind of skill and information to the theater and then back the other way, I think is is uh, is starting to emerge in a way that I'm excited about what's to come. Thomas Kale, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Congratulations on everything. Thank you uh, for having me. And again, if you have a message for me, please, please tweet it right at Lynn. <laughs> a huge thanks to Tommy Kale for stopping by the studio. If you're like us and everyone else in the world waiting for the next season of Hamilton Tickets in 2018, you can follow the production on Twitter at Hamilton Musical. And if you're in New York, you should catch Tommy's show, Tiny Beautiful Things, at the Public Theater through December 10th. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Michael Charbonneau and Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. If you like today's conversation, I hope you'll share it with your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.